0: Good morning church. It's so good to be with you today on this beautiful day. I hope you have your Bibles open or Bibles in the chairs in front of you if you don't have one today or a device open to 2 Samuel chapter 1. We'll get to that text in just a moment. But let me begin with three facts. Let me begin with a review three facts that the careful reader would bring to this text for today, 2 Samuel chapter one. So this is a review over the last few months, things that are related, facts that are related to what we are about to read and look into. Number one, David, the man after God's own heart, as he (coughs) will be described later and is described in scripture elsewhere, has had numerous remarkable opportunities to take the life of King Saul. If you're visiting today, whatever you want to think, why would he want to take the life of King Saul? Well, there's a few reasons. One is uh, King Saul was trying to kill David. We're generally opposed to murder, right? Say yes. yes. But if someone's trying to kill you, that might be an exception. But it wasn't an exception for David. So David had these remarkable opportunities to take out King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill David. He was trying to kill, at moments, David's very closest friend, Jonathan. Perhaps the closest friendship recorded in all the Bible was David and Jonathan. Saul was responsible for the murder of the priesthood of Israel at this time, minus one. There were, if you're going to take someone out, There were a lot of reasons to take Saul out, but David had many opportunities to do that, and he never did. We should bring that to today's passage. Perhaps the most memorable moment in in 1 Samuel, in my mind, is this moment, you probably know where I'm going, in the cave where Saul uh, is going in there to freshen up, let's say, and this cave... And it just so happens that David and the other soldiers are in the back of the cave, and the reader is in suspense. It's like this is the moment, and the David's men. This is the moment to take him, and he doesn't. We need to bring that understanding to Second Samuel chapter one. Number two, that's number fact number one. Fact number two: David does not kill this paranoid, power-hungry, and murderous king. He doesn't kill him. Because the word of God prohibits it. This is fact number two that we bring to the text of 2 Samuel 1 today. Uh, You remember David's heart. We saw it in 1 Samuel 26. David said to Abishai, Abishai was like uh, the the, the SEAL Team 7 guy. He was the up and coming military man that David's training. And and David says to him, do not destroy Saul." For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? There is this theology that the leader of the nation of Israel, this first king Israel, is anointed by God, he is anointed by God, and we do not speak against him. We do not kill him. Exodus 22 and verse 28. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. This is ingrained, this truth, that you don't even speak against God in any way, and nor a ruler of your people, your people, God, Israel. Whether it's a judge, a king, a prophet, you don't speak against him, let alone murder him or take out his life. That's fact number two, as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 1. All of these opportunities to take him out, he doesn't take him out because... Of the teaching of the Word of God. And then, fact number three, in the final chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul's armor bearer, Saul's armor bearer refuses to take the life of Saul. If you weren't here for that week, Saul is shot up with arrows. The Philistines have have shot him up, and he is about to die, and he is suffering. You would think, if there is some exception where you might take the anointed king's life, this, of course, would be it. He's full of arrows and he's suffering. And he asks, at the end of 1 Samuel, for his armor-bearer to relieve him and and move him into eternity and to end his life. And his armor-bearer refuses to do that. All of these facts we bring to today's unit of Scripture, 2 Samuel 1. 1 through 16. So the careful reader is going to be shocked and surprised when we come to 2 Samuel 1 that there is someone here who boldly says, I killed the king of Israel. This is a shock. This is unexpected. This is not anticipated. And it's even confusing for the careful reader in light of what's described in the end, of chapter one. Of what's described at the end of First Samuel, the beginning of Second Samuel, is confusing. And I want to suggest, again, this week. I do this almost every week, that as we read the Bible, what we're really after is not knowledge primarily. We're really not after reading the Bible, but we're after the Bible reading us. So what we want to do when we're reading the Bible, whether you're at home or whether you're here on Sunday morning, is we want to identify with a mutual human condition, a problem that we see in the text that we can identify with. We want to find that problem, that mutual human condition. And what we primarily need is God's grace and God's spirit to work in us. So I want to suggest... That the person that we should identify a mutual human condition with in today's passage is this unnamed guy who says, I killed King Saul. And the mutual human condition that we share with him is that he is living a self-centered life. His life is all about him. And that is the natural tendency for you and for me and for every human being. And what God wants from you and me is not to live a self-centered life, but to live a God-centered life. And I think the key phrase, well the key phrase out of this sermon today, out of this text, there are probably 50 sermons that could be preached out of this text, but the sermon that I am preaching out of this text today emphasizes these words at the end of today's passage where David says to this unnamed man that you and I should identify with, because I'm selfish, you're selfish, and he is very selfish. We're going to see in just a moment how selfish he is. And David says to him, Why were you not afraid? Why were you not afraid to take the life of God's anointing? We could expand or contextualize or paraphrase the question and say, Why were you not afraid of the holy and awesome God who has given you instructions in His Word? How could you just do whatever you want and live your life just just not even considering the awesomeness of God and the truth of His Word? Why were you not afraid? This is how we should approach today's passage. We should be asking ourselves... Are we afraid? And here the word afraid is positive. Here the word afraid might be better communicated in English today with reverence and awe. Why don't you have reverence and awe for God? And why weren't you concerned? To Why, why were you, you, you so happy or enthusiastic even? We're going to see to disobey God's word. Why were you not afraid? These are words to you and me as well. Well, all of that by way of introduction, let's get into our passage now, verses 1 through 16. Let's take a look at verse 1. It says, after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Let me pause here again to just do some some background or refresher for those of you that have memories like mine and you forgot, or those of you that are visiting today. So what has happened here, Refresher, David was going into battle, remember, on the side of the Philistines. He's an Israelite, but he's been living in Philistine territory, and he was going into battle with the Philistines against the Israelites. The Philistine general said, you know, that's not a great idea to have part of our army be Israelites. Let's send them back to Ziglion. And then this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines happened, and David is sent back. So the reader, we know what has happened, but David doesn't know what has happened in that battle. So in verse one, uh, the reader knows that Saul has done, Saul has died. The reader knows that, that Israel has lost this battle, but David doesn't. So he's back in Ziklag on the on the edge of Philistine territory, and he's been there for two days. So that now uh, we come to um, to verse verse two. On the third day, a man, this is the man that we should identify with, on the third day a man arrived from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. This unnamed man knows that David is de facto now the king of Israel, that Saul is dead, and he... He responds the way an ancient person would in the presence of the king. Even a modern person in some parts of our world would respond to the king this way, falling to the ground to pay him honor. So this is a good start. His clothes are torn, dust is on his head, he shows up. Verse 3, where have you come from? David asks him. His answer, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. Now right here, I'm I'm already suspicious. So we have this unnamed man, we're going to learn in a moment, he's an Amalekite. And he has escaped from the Israelite camp. The Israelites have been slaughtered by the Philistines. And you managed to escape. And you managed to travel 50 or 80 miles to Ziklag. So if this is all true, this is an impressive guy. He didn't get taken out in the battle, and he's traveled a really long period, a really long distance, and it's taken him some time, and he's found David. David doesn't know what's happened. Verse 4, what happened? Tell me. You know, there's no streaming news. There's no cell phones. The couriers haven't made it to David yet. What happened? Tell me. This is fast-traveling news. He's already there. What happened? So here's the report. The men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead. David, I think, is suspicious. Verse 5 of this news. So he says to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know? that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. This is why I'm saying he's suspicious. He somehow escaped the battle. He's traveled this massive uh, three-day journey. And how do you know? David doesn't want to believe this either, especially his closest friend. But paradoxically and ironically and somewhat confusingly, I think the careful reader would say he doesn't want Saul to be dead either, which is astonishing. But he certainly doesn't want Jonathan, his closest friend, his covenantal friend, his, his, his blood brother, his fraternity brother, whatever kind of language you could come up with for the closest of close friends, this is his, his uh, what is it, BFF, right? Um, this is what our young people uh, would text to each other. Is that right? Best friend forever? Is that right? Someone help me out. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to be, you know, young and hip up here. <laughs> he gets this news. How do you know? He's skeptical. He's doubting. So here's the guy's response. I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? And Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death. The reader knows he's got arrows in him from chapter 31. So now the reader is somewhat confused because in 31 we learned that Saul died, but this guy is telling us he was still alive. So I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive, this man says to David in verse 9. Verse 10, so I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and brought them here to my Lord. To David, to my Lord Smalletel. So not only has he traveled this great distance, which I think he did, but now he has brought the crown. He's brought the royal garments. So David now has evidence that this guy really did come from there, and he sees this this crown that has been bought, brought to him, and we can just imagine David's emotions. Now let's switch gears from David's emotions to the reader's emotions, to the readers dealing with this. So what is happening? This is confusing if you have a a detailed understanding of the chapter 31, the end of 1 Samuel, in the beginning here. So for those of you that don't, let's move our eyes or listen to verse, um, chapter 31 and verse uh, 5. 1 Samuel 31 and verse 5. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword, And died with him. So the careful reader here is confused. Did Saul die? The way it is described in 1 Samuel 31. What's described in 1 Samuel 31 is that the armor-bearer refuses to give the final death to Saul. He seems to want to obey amazingly the Word of God and not put him out of his misery. He will not do that. And Saul dies, and only once he is dead, then the armor bearer himself falls on his own sword. So what do we do with this here? There's a couple different options that godly people on both sides of how they interpret this, how they deal with this. So here's option one. It is just possible that Saul lived for a short time after falling on his sword until the Amalekite arrived on the scene and killed him at his own request. Now, I would say it's very generous to say this is just possible. There are so many things to try to reconcile the actual, what the man is reporting, which I think the Bible accurately records in 2 Samuel 1. There are so many things that just seem absolutely so unlikely to have happened. That he just happened to be in the middle of the battle scene, that he just happened to survive, that he just happened to get there after the armor bearer whose sole job is to protect the king, and the armor bearer sees that the king is dead and then takes his own life, all of that just is wrong? It seems very unlikely to me. So the second option, there is possible ways, and some people harmonize all this together, but that just seems really unlikely to me. The simplest solution, Uh, Occam's razor, if you will. It says this. Uh, the, The commentator goes on and says that in general, it seems more likely that he, this guy, was robbing corpses, the unnamed man in 2 Samuel 1, that he was robbing corpses on the battlefield, that he just happened to be, uh, it's more likely that he was robbing corpses on the battlefield than he just happened to be in the middle of a fierce battle. So it's difficult to resolve, but I think we are dealing with a man who was incredibly selfish, and who was perhaps, the text doesn't tell us, But the text has, the text forces the careful reader to go, what do we do here? And I think it is most likely that this guy was looking for plunder. And can you believe it? He came across the king. I mean, this is the ultimate plunder. So now he has massive motivation to travel to the next king to give the crown. This doesn't go into enemy hands. This needs to stay with Israel. And he is going to take it there, and he's going to get what he wants. And I think he has made up this story that betrays his ignorance of the word of God. And the reader sees this incredible, paradoxical thing of how so many people did not take the life of King Saul. But this guy comes expecting to get rewarded, perhaps to become David's armor bearer, and bring the crown to him and say, yeah, I, I, I took you There are more clues of of why the view that I'm holding to, and many commentators also hold to, that's not new with me. But let me give you just one of the clues. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 1, this is in the New American Standard Bible, it's harder to see this in the text that I'm reading from. In verse 5 it says, the young man who told him. In verse 6, the young man who told him. In verse 13, the young man who told him. So there are clues, and this is just one of them in the text, That the young man who told him was not telling him the truth. He was telling him a story. And this sophisticated literary work that whoever wrote Samuel put together has put these clues in here to say, this is how these two things come together. This guy was lying. He was self-seeking. He was living for his flesh. And he wants to get on David's good side. And he does not obviously get what he is seeking what he was seeking. We're going to see what he gets in just a moment. But let's come back to our text here. So David now has been presented the evidence. He knows that his covenant brother Jonathan is dead. He knows that many of his colleagues and fellow soldiers are dead. He knows that Israel has lost the battle and that the king is dead. So verse 11 Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. What a contrast we see in verses 11 and 12 and how David mourns for his king, for his friend, for his colleagues, for his, his comrades in the army, and how we often respond. When we lose loved ones. What, what I'm getting at, I mean, I don't know about you, but maybe I'm speaking mostly for men here, but I think for women too. Are, are we kind of like this? If, if we're crying, if we've lost a loved one and we're crying, are we like apologetic and kind of, oh, I'm sorry? are are we like that sometimes? Is that biblical? No, It's no. not. It, it got, death is, is brutal. And when we lose someone we love, It it is a reminder of how broken our world is and how fallen it is and how literally cursed it is. And we have a lot to learn about what they did and this is not the central part of my sermon so I'm not going to spend much time here but they mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul, his son Jonathan. When we lose people that we love it is not only appropriate but very healthy weep, to grieve, to cry. We see this here, and we see this throughout the scriptures. We see Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus. And we, Americans especially, somehow have, have, have gone astray um, from this. Let's come back to our text here and finish up. We're just going through verse 16 today. So, so there's the, the grief in verses 11 through 12. So now we come back to the dialogue with David and this unnamed young man who I'm suggesting that all of us who are selfish here should identify with him. David said to the young man who, who brought him the report, oh, Where are you from? And I think he asked that question because it was pretty obvious that he was not a native Israelite. So he says, I am the son of an alien, or I am the son of a sojourner. An Amalekite, he answered. Now a little background here, this means that his father had become part of the covenant people of God. He was an immigrant or a foreigner or a sojourner who who professed faith in Yahweh. And and they have become spiritual Israelites. They are not ethnically Israelites, but spiritually they are. So this is who this guy is. So David says, who who, who are you? And he tells him, this is why I look the way I do. I'm I'm an Amalekite. So now the key question. David asked him, why were you... Not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointing. He has come expecting reward. He has come expecting, I think, maybe to be his armor bearer, maybe to be appointed to a very high military position. But David has recognized from his story that he has no regard. For the living God, he has no regard for the word of God. He has no understanding that the word of God prohibits taking the life of God's anointed king. Why were you not afraid? So for the Christian reading 2 Samuel, what this text should say to us to put it positively, is that we should constantly be living with a healthy and beautiful fear of the awesome and power and holiness of God. And we should walk in, in light of His, of all of his omni-attributes. That he knows everything, that he has all power, that he's holy, and that he has told us how to live in his word. And if you are living just ignoring him... You are in massive danger. That is the situation of this young man. He is in massive danger. So we have a rhetorical question here, but in many ways this is not a question. This is a statement, a judgment. It is written as a question, I believe, for the reader. But this was a judgment upon this young man. Let's read the judgment. Verse 15, David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David is functioning here as the king, as the jury, as the legislative body, as the executive body. He is the king and the monarch and the judge. There is no need for a jury. There is no need for an investigation. There is no need for a trial. The word of God is clear. And you have just told me you have killed God's anointed. And the punishment, according to the word of God, for this murder is execution. And so we, as as the head of state, and as the anointed one of God, executes this man. So his question was not really looking for his response. The question is a response of the reader for you and me to say, give me fear and reverence for God in the way that I live my life. I don't want to ignore his word is the way that the reader, the Christian, should respond to 2 Samuel 1, 1 through 17. It should be, it should be on my heart constantly, and it was intuitively obvious to David that this man, even though perhaps his father loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as an Amalekite, he became part of the Israelite community and covenant community. But this man was not what he claimed to be. Now, I think, there's a lot of room for interpretation here, but I think that David actually believed that he killed Saul. And the reader knows that he did. not And so the reader and see the unintended consequences of sin. And we should be thinking mostly not about his sin, but my sin, about your sin. As you listen to this message today, you should not be thinking about your family member, or your friend, or your child, or your parent. You should be thinking about yourself. And what God's Word is saying to us, Why were you not full of this holy, beautiful, reverential fear to live under the authority of God and his word? And the reader should say, that's who I am, God. You shouldn't be nervous. You should simply surrender in your heart and say, I'm going to live under your awesome power, God, and I'm going to live according to your word. None of us do it perfectly, but this man ignored it. He just went about his wedding, even though he knew that Yahweh existed. His family had converted to the the community of Yahweh, to the people of Israel. So that's our text today. Why were you not afraid? Just a few implications as we close i going to go on for a few more minutes. I'm not closing. A few more implications. Psalm 119 helps us to know how not to be like this man. We, I'm saying, you're saying, like we said we're like we're like him in that in the flesh we're selfish, but in the spirit we say, God, I don't want to be like this man. That's how we respond. And so, what do we need to be? What kind of man, a woman, do you or I need to be? We need to be. The Kind of man or woman, like the psalmist in 119, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. This guy didn't know that you shouldn't kill the anointed. He came to the next anointed one, David, and said, Hey, I did you a favor, I killed this guy, and now you, here's the crown. You want me to put it on? I'm ready for the prize. He didn't have a clue about any of that. The psalmist meditates on God's precepts and regards his ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. This is what was missing from the unnamed man, the Amalekite, who brings the crown to King David. He didn't have a heart that said, open my eyes. May I obey the wonderful things in your law. He was... Treated God like in His Word, like it's not a big deal, and I'm going to get in this position. So what I'm trying to say is that the Bible matters in the everyday stuff of life. The Bible matters. If this was, if this guy was going through the battlefield after the battle was over, which is likely, and plundering all this stuff, and comes across the crown, the Word of God and God Himself is far from from his from his thinking. And the Bible matters. It matters when he was on that battlefield, and it had no role in his life that day. And so he decided to go in this way, deception and lying and cheating. So sometimes uh, selfish, selfishness, sometimes selfishness is most clearly seen uh, when you're completely ignored by something. I mentioned last week, uh, chemistry class. Remember that, those were here. Can you who Can you remember back to chemistry class? Yeah, it's a while ago for most of you. Maybe a few of you here hasn't happened yet. Most of us a while ago. Some of you might be in chemistry class now. But I want you to imagine, go back to chemistry class. And imagine uh, you've got a lab partner in that class. You're in high school, you've got this lab partner. And you look up to this lab partner. This person has gotten together and, and uh, you know you, you only know them from class, and you get to know this person. They're, they're your partner. You know you're, you're heating up the beaker, and water's going into gas form, and then back into. Remember that? You're doing all that stuff, and then you see that lab partner of yours at the football game. In the social context, you've you got to know each other. You're you, you looked up to this person, and they just and you say hi to them at the football game just walk by you like you don't even exist. That can be more painful than someone attacking you or gossiping about you. Just being completely ignored. This guy, the unnamed Amalekite becoming part of the covenant community, is someone who has completely ignored God in his day-to-day. Like Jesus, I know He really exists. I'm just going to walk by and do my own thing, living a self centered life. Look with me at Psalm 36. I have a message from God in my heart, the Psalm says, concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This fear of God is a good fear, a beautiful fear, a, a reference and oh they don't have that in their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin god we don't want to be that kind of person we don't want to be like this young man even though our flesh wants us to live for ourselves there is this battle that goes on inside of us as christians So the Lord Jesus matters in the everyday stuff of life. The Bible matters in the everyday stuff of life. Don't just walk by it and ignore it. So what should our lives look like? Again, going back to the last few sermons, our lives in many ways should look very similar to the first followers of Jesus. The ordinary means of grace. I've referred to them as and people have been referring to them as that for many centuries. They, the first followers of Jesus, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Are you devoted to the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament? That's what a Christ follower does. This man was not devoted to Torah. He wasn't devoted to God's teaching. They're continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. That is to intimate community with other believers who can speak in to my selfish ways and I can speak into his or her selfish ways. That's what koinonia is. That's what fellowship is. The breaking of bread, that is having meals together, including the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do in just a few moments. And to prayer. This is what the Christian life looks like. This young man, this unnamed young man, is not what the life of godliness looks like. Final, um, close to my final thing here. Why were you not afraid? It's the key question. The final thing I want to say in implication of this whole passage, 2 Samuel 1. So my sins matter because they rob Christ of his glory. Mike's sins matter because they rob the Lord Jesus of his glory. The Young Amalekite sins open the Christ followers' eyes to the hideousness of one's own sins. The right response to this passage and the other passages that I've referred to today is not to think about your child or your parent or your neighbor and that you wish that they had heard the sermon, but to think of your own sins and how hideous and how ugly they are and to begin to hate them. That we are very much. Unlike this young man, even though in some ways we are like this young man. The consequences of some sins cannot be mitigated. That is one of the obvious things from this passage. His sin leads him to death, no matter how you interpret this. If you want to try to harmonize it, and you think all these things actually happened, that he wasn't lying, I don't think that's the case. But even if that were the case, consequences of his sins lead to his death. They cannot be relieved sometimes. So this is another reason to hate our sin. But the consequences, the real-life, day-to-day consequences of the sinful choices that you make, the sinful choices that I make, are, are, are massive and terrible. Finally, and here we're at the end, the crushing reality that my sins brought Christ of His glory. I thought of it this week, as this passage was working on my heart this week. What would my life be like if the person I care for the most, or in your case, what would your life be like? The person you cared for the most in life, your closest friend, or your spouse, or whoever it is, they, they suffered and died so that you might die. Would you carry that with you? And so, someone that was here today, they, they died for you. Would you just walk by that truth throughout your life? Or would that stay with you? I'm suggesting it's going to stay with you. And the death of Jesus, for my sin and for your sin, is to stay with us. And when you and I sin, we are robbing him of the glory that he wants to get from our lives. He wants you and me to live life, a life of joy of the fruit of the Spirit, and a life of obedience. And when we go astray from His Word, we rob Him of the glory that He purchased for us on the cross. The glory, in part, is to transform us in this life, also to save us and to keep us perfect, which we will be in the new heavens and new earth, but in this life until then, to be changed and to be like Him, and He gets glory from that. We rob him of that when we just walk by his word. We just walk by him. And we don't live for him as though he really died for us because the truth is, your closest friend actually died for you. It was a brutal death. And he loved you. And he wants you to live for him. He wants you to live a life that is so opposite to this young man. That's my heads. God, your will for us is to be filled with love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and, guidance and kindness, goodness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Lord, your desire for us is not to feel bad about ourselves, but to be full of joy. Lord, help us to be people who meditate on your word and seek to obey it. None of us are going to obey it perfectly. And yet, you call us to grow and to become more and more in the image of Jesus as we walk with you. And that's really what we are after, God. Help us. Help us, God, to be the furthest thing from someone who would walk by and not be mindful of Jesus giving his life to us. We would walk by the Word of God and not pay attention to it. Lord, help us to be mindful. Of it. We pray in Jesus' name.